Book One, Chapter Eleven of Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. Chapter Eleven Private Interviews. The winter passed slowly away. Robert and Shargar went to school together and learned their lessons together at Mrs. Falconer's table. Shargar soon learned to behave with tolerable propriety, was obedient as far as eye-service went, looked as queer as ever, did what he pleased, which was nowise very wicked, the moment he was out of the old lady's sight, was well fed and well cared for, and when he was asked how he was, gave the invariable answer, Midland. He was not very happy. There was little communication in words between the two boys, for the one had not much to say, and the pondering fits of the other grew rather than relaxed in frequency and intensity. Yet amongst chanced acquaintances in the town, Robert had the character of a wag, of which he was totally unaware himself. Indeed, although he had more than the ordinary share of humour, I suspect it was not so much his fun as his earnest that got him the character, for he would say such altogether unheard-of and strange things, that the only way they were capable of accounting for him was as a humorist. Eh, he said once to Elshender, during a pause common to a thunderstorm, and a lesson on the violin, eh, would not ye like to be up in the clood with the spod turning o'er the divots, and catching the flashes lying beneath them like long red fiery worms? Ay, man, but given you look up to the cludes, that gate you'll never be muckle of a fiddler. This was merely an outbreak of that insolence of advice so often shown to the young from no vantage ground, but that of age and faithlessness, reminding one of the jiggling fool who interfered between Brutus and Cassius on the sole ground that he had seen more years than they as if ever a fiddler that did not look up to the clouds would be anything but a catgut scraper. Even Elshender's fiddle was the one angel that held back the heavy curtain of his gross nature, and let the sky shine through. He ought to have been set fiddling every Sunday morning, and from his fiddling dragged straight to church. It was the only thing man could have done for his conversion, for then his heart was open, but I fear the prayers would have closed it before the sermon came. He should rather have been compelled to take his fiddle to church with him, and have a gentle scrape at it in the pauses of the service. Only there are no such pauses in the service, alas, and Dubal Sanny, though not too religious to get drunk occasionally, was a great deal too religious to play his fiddle on the Sabbath. He would not willingly anger the powers above, but it was sometimes a sore temptation, especially after he got possession of old Mrs. Falconer's wonderful instrument. Hoots, man, he would say to Robert, do not handle her as given she were an egg-box. Take hold of her as given she were a leaving crater. Ye mind just stroke her canny, and while the music oot of her, for she's like other women, given ye be rough with her, you will not get a word out of her, and do not handle her that gate. She cannot bide to be contrared and pulled this gate and that gate. Come to me, my bonny laddie. You'll tell me your story, will not ye, my pet? And with every gesture, 
as if he were humouring a shy and invalid girl, he would, as he said, while the music out of her in sobs and wailing till the instrument gathering courage in his embrace grew gently merry in its confidence and broke at last into airy laughter he always spoke and apparently thought of his violin as a woman just as a sailor does of his craft but there was nothing about him except his love for music and its instruments to suggest other than a most uncivilized nature that which was fine in him was constantly checked and held down by the gross the merely animal overpowered the spiritual and it was only upon occasion that his heavenly companion the violin could raise him a few feet above the mire and the clay she never succeeded in setting his feet on a rock while on the contrary he often dragged her with him into the mire of questionable company and circumstances Worthy Mr. Falconer would have been horrified to see his unquilly modest companion in such society as that into which she was now introduced at times, but nevertheless the shoemaker was a good and patient teacher, and although it took Robert rather more than a fortnight to redeem his pledge to Shargar, he did make progress. It could not, however, be rapid, seeing that an hour at a time, two evenings in the week, was all that he could give to the violin. Even with this moderation, the risk of his absence exciting his grandmother's suspicion and inquiry was far from small. And now, were those really faded old memories of his grandfather and his merry kindness also different from the solemn benevolence of his grandmother, which seemed to revive in his bosom with the revivification of the violin? The instrument had surely laid up a story in its hollow breast, had been dreaming over it all the time it lay hidden away in the closet, and was now telling out its dreams about the old times in the ear of the listening boy. To him also it began to assume something of that majesty in life which had such a softening, and for the moment at least elevating influence on his master. At length the love of the violin had grown upon him so, that he could not but cast about how he might enjoy more of its company, it would not do, for many reasons, to go oftener to the shoemakers, especially now that the days were getting longer. Nor was that what he wanted. He wanted opportunity for practice. He wanted to be alone with the creature, to see if she would not say something more to him than she had ever said yet. Wafts and odors of melodies began to steal upon him ere he was aware in the half-lights between sleeping and waking. If he could only entice them to creep out of the violin and, once, bless his humble ears with the bodily hearing of them, perhaps he might, who could tell? But how? But where? There was a building in Rothedon, not old, yet so deserted that its very history seemed to have come to a standstill, and the dust that filled it to have fallen from the plumes of passing centuries. It was the property of Mrs. Falconer, left her by her husband. Trade had gradually ebbed away from the town till the thread factory stood unoccupied, with all its machinery rusting and mouldering, just as the workpeople had risen and left it one hot midsummer day when they were told that their services were no longer required. Some of the thread even remained upon the spools, and in the hollows of some of the sockets the oil had as yet dried only into a paste, although to Robert the desertion of the place appeared immemorial. It stood at a furlong's distance from the house, on the outskirt of the town. 
There was a large neglected garden behind it, with some good fruit trees and plenty of the bushes which boys love for the sake of their berries. After Granny's jam pots were properly filled, the remnant of these, a gleaming far greater than the gathering, was at the disposal of Robert, and, philosopher although in some measure he was already, he appreciated the privilege. Haunting this garden in the previous summer, he had, for the first time, made acquaintance with the interior of the deserted factory. The door to the road was always kept locked, and the key of it lay in one of Granny's drawers. But he had then discovered a back entrance, less securely fastened, and with a strange mingling of fear and curiosity, had from time to time extended his rambles over what seemed to him the huge desolation of the place. Half of it was well built of stone and lime, but of the other half, the upper part was built of wood, which now showed signs of considerable decay. One room opened into another, through the length of the place, revealing a vista of machines, standing with an air of the last folding of the wings of silence over them, and the sense of a deeper and deeper sinking into the soundless abyss. But their activity was not so vanished, but that by degrees Robert came to fancy that he had some time or other seen a woman seated at each of those silent powers whose single hand set the whole frame in motion with its numberless spindles and spools rapidly revolving a vague mystery of endless threads and orderly complication out of which came some desired to him unknown result so that the whole place was full of a bewildering tumult of work every little reel contributing its share as the water-drops clashing together make the roar of a tempest. Now all was still as the church on a weekday, still as the school on a Saturday afternoon. Nay, the silence seemed to have settled down like the dust, and grown old and thick, so dead and old that the ghost of the ancient noise had arisen to haunt the place. Thither would Robert carry his violin, and there would he woo her, I'm thinking I mount take her with me the night, Sanders, he said, holding the fiddle lovingly to his bosom, after he had finished his next lesson. The shoemaker looked blank. You're no going to desert me, are ye? Nay, well, I wot, returned Robert. But I want to try her at home. I mount get used till her a hitty ye can, afore I can do anything with her. I wish ye had nae brought her here, then. What am I to do wantin' her? Well, for did not ye get your own back? I have not the siller, man, and forby a duta would not be that sore content with her no given I had her. I used to think her grand, but I'm clean out of conceit of her. That bonny laddie's taken clean out of me. But ye cannot have her eye, yea, can, Sanders. She's no mine. She's my granny's, ye can. What's the use of her to her? She pits nae value upon her, and, man, given she would give her to me, I would hold her in the best of shown all the lave of her days. I would not be muckle, Sanders, for she has not had a new pyre sin ever I mind. But I would hold Betty in shoon as well. Betty pays her for her own shoon, I reckon. Well, I would hold you in shoon, and your barons, and your bairns, bairns, cried the shoemaker with enthusiasm. Hut tut, man, long or that you'll be fiddling in the new Jerusalem. He, man, said Alexander, looking up. He had just cracked the roset ends off his hands, 
for he had the upper leather of a boot in the grasp of the clamps, and his right hand hung arrested on its blind way to the all. Dove ye think there'll be fiddles there? I thought they were all harps all things, and I never saw, but it could not be up till a fiddle. I did not ken, answered Robert, but ye should make a point of seeing for yourself. Given I thought there would be fiddles there, faith I would have a try. Would not be muckle of a Jerusalem to me wantin' my fiddle. But given there be fiddles, I dar say there'll be grand un. I dar say they would give me a new one. I mean, on old as Noah's, at he played in the ark when the devil came in by to hearken. I would fain have a try. Ye can all aboot it with that granny of yours. Who's a body to begin? I given up the drink, man. Ay, 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 I reckon you're right. Well, I'll think aboot it when once I'm through with this job. That'll be next week, or thereabouts, or Ablin's twa days after. I'll have some laser then. Before he had finished speaking, he had caught up his awl and began to work vigorously, boring his holes as if the nerves of feeling were continued to the point of the tool, inserting the bristles that served him for needles with a delicacy worthy of soft-skinned fingers, drawing through the rosin threads with a whisk, and untwining them with a crack from the leather that guarded his hands. "'Good neck to ye,' said Robert, with the fiddle-case under his arm. The shoemaker looked up, with his hands bound in his threads. "'You're nae going to take her from me the night?' "'I am I, but I'll fess her back again. I'm no going to Jericho with her.' "'Going to Heckleburny with her, and that's three miles o' yon tell.' nay we maun win farther nor that there cannot be muckle fiddlin there well take her to the new jerusalem i's goin doon to lucky leary's and fill myself roarin foul and it'll be all your blame i doot you'll get the blows though or maybe ye think bell'll take them for ye Dubble sandy caught up a huge boot the sole of which was filled with broad-headed nails as thick as they could be driven and in a rage threw it at Robert as he darted out. Through its clang against the door-check the shoemaker heard a cry from the instrument. He cast everything from him and sprang after Robert, but Robert was down the wine like a long-legged greyhound, and Elshender could only follow like a fierce mastiff. It was love and grief, though, and apprehension and remorse, not vengeance, that winged his heels. He soon saw that pursuit was in vain. "'Robert! Robert!' he cried. I cannot win up with ye. Stop, for God's sakes. Is she hurt it? Robert stopped at once. Ye have made a bonny leddy of her, a cripple, I doot, like your wife, he answered with indignation. Do not be I flinging a man's faults in his face. It just makes him at he cannot bide himself for you either. Let's see the bonny crater. Robert complied, for he too was anxious. They were now standing in the space in front of Shargar's old abode, and there was no one to be seen. Elshender took the box, opened it carefully, and peeped in, with a face of great apprehension. "'I thought that was all,' he said, with some satisfaction. "'I kent the string when I heard it. But we'll soon get a new tharn-tiller,' he added in a tone of sorrowful commiseration and condolence as he took the violin from the case tenderly as if it had been a hurt child one touch of the bow drawing out a gowl of grief satisfied him that she was uninjured 
Next, a hurried inspection showed him that there was enough of the catgut twisted round the peg to make up for the part that was broken off. In a moment he had fastened it to the tail-piece, tightened and tuned it. Forthwith he took the bow from the case-lid, and in jubilant guise he expatiated upon the wrong he had done his bonny laddie, till the doors and windows around were crowded with heads, peering through the dark to see whence the sounds came, and a little child toddled across from one of the lowliest houses with a half-penny for the fiddler. Gladly would Robert have restored it with interest, but alas, there was no interest in his bank, for not a half-penny had he in the world. The incident recalled Sandy Dorothedon and its cares. He restored the violin to its case, and while Robert was fearing he would take it under his arm and walk away with it, handed it back with a humble sigh and a praise be thank it, then, without another word, turned and went to his lonely stool and home, untreasured of its mistress. Robert went home, too, and stole like a thief to his room. The next day was a Saturday, which indeed was the real old Sabbath, or at least the half of it, to the schoolboys of Rothaden. Even Robert's granny was Jew enough, or rather Christian enough, to respect this remnant of the fourth commandment, divine antidote to the rest of the godless money-making and soul-saving week, and he had the half-day to himself. So as soon as he had had his dinner, he managed to give Shargar the slip, left him to the inroads of a desolate despondency, and stole away to the old factory garden. The key of that he had managed to purloin from the kitchen where it hung. Nor was there much danger of its absence being discovered, seeing that in winter no one thought of the garden. The smuggling of the violin out of the house was the dearest danger, the more so that he would not run the risk of carrying her out unprotected, and it was altogether a bulky venture with the case. But by spying and speeding he managed it, and soon found himself safe within the high walls of the garden. It was early spring. There had been a heavy fall of sleet in the morning, and now the wind blew gustfully about the place. The neglected trees shook showers upon him as he passed under them, trampling down the rank growth of the grass walks. The long twigs of the wall-trees, which had never been nailed up or had been torn down by the snow and the blasts of winter, went trailing away in the moan of the fitful wind and swung back as it sunk to a sigh. The current and gooseberry bushes, bare and leafless and shivering all for cold, neither reminded him of the feasts of the past summer nor gave him any hope for the next. He strode careless through it all to gain the door at the bottom. It yielded to a push, and the long grass streamed in over the threshold as he entered. He mounted by a broad stair in the main part of the house, passing the silent clock in one of its corners, now expiating in motionlessness the false accusations it had brought against the workpeople, and turned into the chaos of machinery. I fear that my readers will expect, from the minuteness with which I recount these particulars, that, after all, I am going to describe a rendezvous with a lady, or a ghost at least. I will not plead in excuse that I too have been infected with Sandy's mode of regarding her, but I plead that in the mind of Robert the proceeding was involved in something of that awe and mystery with which a youth approaches the woman he loves. He had not yet arrived at the period when the feminine assumes its paramount influence, combining in itself all that music, color, form, odor can suggest, with something infinitely higher and more divine, 
but he had begun to be haunted with some vague aspirations toward the infinite of which his attempts on the violin were the outcome and now that he was to be alone for the first time with this wonderful realizer of dreams and awakener of visions to do with her as he would to hint by gentle touches at the thoughts that were fluttering in his soul and listen for her voice that by the echoes in which she strove to respond he might know that she understood him it was no wonder if he felt an ethereal foretaste of the expectation that haunts the approach of souls but i am not even going to describe his first tete-a-tete with his violin perhaps he returned from it somewhat disappointed probably he found her coy unready to acknowledge his demands on her attention but not the less willingly did he return with her to the solitude of the ruinous factory on every safe occasion becoming more and more frequent as the days grew longer he repaired thither and every time returned more capable of drawing the coherence of melody from that matrix of sweet sounds at length the people about began to say that the factory was haunted that the ghost of old mr falconer unable to repose while neglect was ruining the precious results of his industry visited the place night after night and solaced his disappointment by renewing on his favourite violin strains not yet forgotten by him in his grave and remembered well by those who had been in his service not a few of whom lived in the neighbourhood of the forsaken building one gusty afternoon like the first but late in the spring robert repaired as usual to his secret haunt he had played for some time and now from a sudden pause of impulse had ceased and begun to look around him the only light came from two long pale cracks in the rain clouds of the west the wind was blowing through the broken windows which stretched away on either hand a dreary windy gloom therefore pervaded the desolate place and in the dusk and their settled order the machines looked multitudinous an eerie sense of discomfort came over him as he gazed and he lifted his violin to dispel the strange unpleasant feeling that grew upon him but at the first long stroke across the strings an awful sound arose in a further room a sound that made him all but drop the bow and cling to his violin it went on it was the old all but forgotten whir of bobbins mingled with the gentle groans of the revolving horizontal wheel but magnified in the silence of the place and the echoing imagination of the boy into something preternaturally awful yielding for a moment to the growth of goose-skin and the insurrection of hair he recovered himself by a violent effort and walked to the door that connected the two compartments was it more or less fearful than the jenny was not going of itself that the figure of an old woman sat solemnly turning and turning the hand-wheel not without calling in the jury of his senses however would he yield to the special plea of his imagination but went nearer half expecting to find that the much with its big flapping borders glimmering white in the gloom across many a machine surrounded the face of a skull but he was soon satisfied that it was only a blind woman everybody knew so old that she had become childish she had heard the reports of the factory being haunted and groping about with her half-withered brain full of them had found the garden and the back door open and had climbed to the first floor by a farther stair well known to her when she used to work that very machine she had seated herself instinctively according to ancient wont and had set it in motion once more yielding to an impulse of experiment robert began to play again
Thereupon her disordered ideas broke out in words, and Robert soon began to feel that it could hardly be more ghastly to look upon a ghost than to be taken for one. "'Ay, ay, sir,' said the old woman, in a tone of commiseration. "'It mount be sore to bide. I dinna wonder at ye cannot lie still. But what gars ye go on dowering aboot this place? It's no yours ony longer. Ye ken when folks dead, they lose the grip. Ye should go on home to your wife. She might say a word to quiet your old bones, for she's a douse and a wise woman, the mistress.' Then followed a pause. There was a horror about the old woman's voice, already half dissolved by death in the desolate place, that almost took from Robert the power of motion. But his violin sent forth an accidental twang, and that set her going again. "'You was I a douse honest gentleman yourself, and I did not wonder you cannot bide it. But I would have thought glory might have holden ye in. But your own son, ha hey, hi and a braw lad and a bonny it's a sod thing ye bood to go on the wrong gate and it's no wonder as i say that ye lead the worms to come and look after him i do it i do it would not be to you he'll go on at the long last there would not be room for him aside ye in abraham's bosom and signed to behave so ill to that winsome wife of his i did not wonder at ye mount be up and now but, sir, since ye are up, I wish ye would spake to John Thomason no to take off the day at I was away last wake, for deed I was very unwell, and would to keep my bed. Robert was beginning to feel uneasy as to how he should get rid of her, when she rose and saying, Ay, ay, I can, at six o'clock, went out as she had come in. Robert followed and saw her safe out of the garden, but did not return to the factory. So, his father had behaved ill to his mother, too. But what for hearken to the havers of a dawdled old wife, he said to himself, pondering as he walked home. Old Janet told a strange story of how she had seen the ghost, and had had a long talk with him, and of what he said and of how he groaned and played the fiddle between. And finding that the report had reached his grandmother's ears, Robert thought it prudent much to his discontent to intermit his visits to the factory. Mrs. Falconer, of course, received the rumor with indignant scorn, and peremptorily refused to allow any examination of the premises. But how have the violin by him, and not hear her speak? One evening the longing after her voice grew upon him till he could resist it no longer. He shut the door of his garret room and with Shargar by him, took her out and began to play softly, gently, oh so softly, so gently. Shargar was enraptured. Robert went on playing. Suddenly the door opened and his granny stood awfully revealed before them. Betty had heard the violin and had flown to the parlour in the belief that, unable to get any one to heed him at the factory, the ghost had taken Janet's advice and come home. But his wife smiled a smile of contempt, went with Betty to the kitchen, over which Robert's room lay, heard the sounds, put off her creaking shoes, stole upstairs on her soft white lamb's wool stockings, and caught the pair. The violin was seized, put in the case, and carried off and Mrs. Falconer rejoiced to think she had broken a trap set by Satan for the unwary feet of her poor Robert. 
Little she knew the wonder of that violin, how it had kept the soul of her husband alive. Little she knew how dangerous it is to shut an open door, with ever so narrow a peep into the eternal, in the face of a son of Adam. And little she knew how determinedly and restlessly a nature like Robert's would search for another, to open one, possibly, which she might consider ten times more dangerous than that which she had closed. When Alexander heard of the affair, he was at first overwhelmed with the misfortune. But, gathering a little heart, at last, he set to workin', as he said himself, like a very devil. And as he was the best shoemaker in the town, and for the time abstained utterly from whisky, and all sorts of drink but well water, he soon managed to save the money necessary and redeem the old fiddle. But whether it was from fancy, or habit, or what, even Robert's inexperienced ear could not accommodate itself, save under protest to the instrument which once his teacher had considered all but perfect, and it needed the master's finest touch to make its tone other than painful to the sense of the neophyte. No one can estimate too highly the value of such a resource to a man like the shoemaker, or a boy like Robert. Whatever it be that keeps the finer faculties of the mind awake, wonder alive, and the interest above mere eating and drinking, money-making and money-saving, whatever it be that gives gladness or sorrow or hope, this be it violin, pencil, pen, or highest of all the love of a woman, is simply a divine gift of holy influence for the salvation of that being to whom it comes, for the lifting of him out of the mire and up on the rock. For it keeps a way open for the entrance of deeper, holier, grander influences, emanating from the same riches of the Godhead. And though many have genius that have no grace, they will only be so much the worse, so much the nearer to the brute, if you take from them that which corresponds to Dubal Sandy's fiddle. End chapter 11